Appendix F of the Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 1A. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government by Jefferson Davis, Volume 1A, Appendix F, Part 2. Mr. Chestnut read from the Opinions of the Attorneys General, Volume 7, page 575. The Supreme Court has determined that the United States never held any municipal sovereignty, jurisdiction, or right of soil in the territory of which any of the new states have been formed, except for temporary purposes, and to execute the trust created by the deeds of cession. By the force of the same principle, and in the same line of abjudications, the Supreme Court would have had to decide that the provision of the Act of March 6, 1820, which undertakes to determine in advance the municipal law of all that portion of the original province of Louisiana, which lies north of the parallel 36-30 north latitude, was null and void, ab incepto, if it had not been repealed by a recent Act of Congress. For an act of Congress which pretends of right, and without consent or compact, to impose on the municipal powers of any new state or states, limitations and restrictions not imposed on all, is contrary to the fundamental condition of the Confederation, according to which there is to be equality of right between the old and new states, in all respects whatsoever. Mr. Davis it was not long after this official opinion of the attorneys general before the case arose on which the decision had been made which has so agitated the country fortunate indeed was it for the public peace that land and religion had been decided those questions on which men might reason had been the foundation of judicial decision before that which drives all reason it seems from the mind of man came to be presented the question whether cuffy should be kept in his normal condition or not the question whether the congress of the united states could decide what might or might not be property in a territory the case being that an officer of the army sent into a territory to perform his public duty having taken with him his negro slave the court however in giving their decision in this case or their opinion if it suits the gentleman better have gone into the question with such clearness such precision and such amplitude that it will relieve me from the necessity of arguing it any further than to make a reference to some sentences contained in that opinion and here let me say i cannot see how those who agreed on a former occasion that the constitutional right of the slaveholder to take his property into the territory the constitutional power of the congress and the constitutional power of the territory to legislate upon that subject should be a judicial question can now attempt to escape the operation of an opinion which covers the exact political question which it was known beforehand the court would be called upon to decide decided in strictness of technical language it was known it could not be hundreds thousands a vast variety of cases may arise and centuries elapse and leave that court if our union still exists deciding questions in relation to the character of property in the territories but the great and fundamental idea was that after thirty years of angry controversy dividing the people and paralyzing the arm of the federal government 
some umpire should be sought which would compose the difficulty and set it upon a footing to leave us in future to proceed in peace and that umpire was selected which the constitution had provided to decide questions of law i asked my friend to read some extracts from the decision mr chestnut read as follows from the case of dred scott versus sanford pages fifty five through fifty seven the territory being a part of the united states the government and the citizen both enter it under the authority of the constitution with their respective rights defined and marked out and the federal government can exercise no power over his person or property beyond what that instrument confers nor lawfully deny any right which it has reserved the powers over person and property of which we speak are not only not granted to congress but are in express terms denied, and they are forbidden to exercise them. And this prohibition is not confined to the states, but the words are general and extend to the whole territory over which the Constitution gives it power to legislate, including those portions of it remaining under territorial government, as well as that covered by states. It is a total absence of power everywhere within the domain of the United States, and places the citizens of a territory, so far as these rights are concerned, on the same footing with citizens of the states, and guards them as firmly and plainly against any inroads which the general government might attempt under the plea of implied or incidental powers. And if Congress itself cannot do this, if it is beyond the powers conferred on the federal government, it will be admitted, we presume, that it could not authorize a territorial government to exercise them. It could confer no power on any local government established by its authority to violate the provisions of the Constitution. And if the Constitution recognizes the right of property of the master and the slave, and makes no distinction between the description of property and other property owned by a citizen, no tribunal acting under the authority of the United States whether it be legislative, executive, or judicial, has a right to draw such a distinction, or deny to it the benefit of the provisions and guarantees which have been provided for the protection of private property against the encroachments of the government. This is done in plain words, too plain to be misunderstood, and no word can be found in the Constitution which gives Congress a greater power over slave property or which entitles property of that kind to less protection than property of any other description. The only power conferred is the power coupled with the duty of guarding and protecting the owner in his rights. Upon these considerations, it is the opinion of the court that the act of Congress which prohibited a citizen from holding and owning property of this kind in the territory of the United States north of the line therein mentioned is not warranted by the Constitution, and is therefore void, and that neither Dred Scott himself nor any of his family were made free by being carried into this territory, even if they had been carried there by the owner, with the intention of becoming a permanent resident. Mr. Davis, here then, Mr. President, I say, the umpire selected as the referee in the controversy has decided that neither the Congress nor its agent, the territorial government, has the power to invade or impair the right of property within the limits of the territory. I will not inquire whether it be technically a decision or not. 
it was obligatory on those who selected the umpire and agreed to abide by the award. It is well known to those who have been associated with me in the two houses of Congress that, from the commencement of the question, I have been the determined opponent of what is called squatter sovereignty. I never gave it countenance, and I am now least of all disposed to give it quarter. In 1848 it made its appearance for good purposes. It was ushered in by a great and good man. He brought it forward because of the distrust which he had in the capacity of the government to bear the rude shock to which it was exposed. His apprehension, no doubt, in some extent sharpened and directed his patriotism, and his reflection led him to a conclusion to which, I doubt not, to-day he adheres as tenaciously as ever, but from which it was my fortune, good or ill, to dissent when his letter was read to me in manuscript. I being, together with some other persons, asked, though not by the writer, whether or not it should be sent. At the first blush I believed it to be fallacy, a fallacy fraught with mischief, that it escaped an issue which was upon us which it was our duty to meet, that it escaped it by a side path which led to a greater danger. I thought it a fallacy which would surely be exploded. I doubted then, and still more for some time afterward, when held to a dread responsibility for the position which I occupied, I doubted whether I should live to see the fallacy exploded. It has been more speedily, and, to the country, more injuriously than I anticipated. In the meantime, what has been its operation? Let Kansas speak, the first great field on which the trial was made. What was then the consequence? The federal government, withdrawing control, leaving the contending sections, excited to the highest point upon the question, each to send forth its army. Kansas became the battlefield, and Kansas the cry, which well nigh led to civil war. This was the first fruit, more deadly than the fatal upas. Its effect was not limited to the mere spot of ground on which the dew fell from its leaves, but it spread throughout the United States. It kindled all which had been collected for years of inflammable material. It was owing to the strength of our government and the good sense of the quiet masses of the people that it did not wrap our country in one widespread conflagration. What right had Congress then, or has it now, to shrink from the performance of a duty because the mere counters spread on the table may be swept off when they have not answered the purposes for which they were placed? What is it to you or me or anyone when we weigh our own continuation in place against the great interests of which we are conservators, against the welfare of the country and the liberty of our posterity to the remotest ages? What is it, I say, which can be counted in the balance on our side against the performance of that duty which is imposed upon us? If anyone believes Congress has not the constitutional power, he acts conscientiously in assisting upon Congress not usurping it. If any one believes that the squatters upon the lands of the United States within a territory are invested with sovereignty, having won it by some of those processes unknown to history, without grant or without revolution, without money and without price, he, adhering to the theory, may pursue it to its conclusion. To the first class, those who claim sovereign power over the territories for Congress, I say, lay your hand upon the Constitution, and find there the warrant of your authority. 
of the second those whom i have last spoken i ask in the constitution reason right or justice what is there to sustain your theory the phraseology which has been employed on this question seems to me to betray a strange confusion of ideas to speak of a sovereignty a plenary legislative power deriving its power from an agent a sovereignty held subject to articles with the formation of which that sovereignty has nothing to do a compact to which it was not a party you say to a sovereign a and b have agreed to certain terms between themselves and you must govern your conduct according to them yet i do not deny your sovereignty that is the power to do as they please provided it conforms to the rule which others chose to lay down can this be a definition of sovereignty but again sir nothing seems to me more illogical than the argument that this power is acquired by a grant from the congress connected with the other argument that congress have not got the power to do the act themselves that is to say that the recipient takes more than the giver possessed that a territorial legislator can do anything which a state legislature can do and that subject to the constitution means merely the restraints imposed upon both this is confounding the whole theory and the history of our government the states were the granters they made the compact they gave the federal agent its powers they inhibited themselves from doing certain things and all else they retained to themselves this federal agent got just so much as the states chose to give no more it could do nothing save by warrant of the authority of the grant made by the states therefore its powers are not comparable to the powers of the state legislature because one is a creature of grant and the other the exponent of sovereign power the supreme court have covered the whole ground of the relation of the congress to the territorial legislatures the agent of the states and the agent of the congress and the restrictions put upon one are those put upon the other in language so clear as to render it needless further to labor the subject in eighteen fifty following the promulgation of this notion of squatter sovereignty we had the idea of non-intervention introduced into the senate of the united states and it is strange to me how that idea was expanded it seems to have been more malleable than gold to have been hammered out to an extent that covers boundless regions uncovered by those who proclaimed the doctrine non-intervention then meant as the debates show that congress should neither prohibit nor establish slavery in the territories that i hold to now will any one suppose that congress has meant by non-intervention that congress should legislate in no regard in respect to property in slaves why sir the very acts which they passed at the time refute it there is the fugitive slave law and that abomination of laws which assumed to confiscate the property of a citizen who should attempt to bring it into this district with intent to remove it to sell it at some other time and at some other place congress acted then upon the subject acted beyond the limit of its authority as i believed confidently believed and if ever that art comes before the supreme court i feel satisfied they will declare it null and void are we to understand that those men thus acting at the very moment intending by non-intervention to deny and repudiate the laws they were then creating the men who stood most prominently the advocate of the measures of that year who great 
and many periods of our history, perhaps shone then with the brightest light his genius ever emitted. I refer to Henry Clay, has given his own view on this subject, and I suppose he may be considered as the highest authority. In June 18, 1850, I had introduced an amendment to the Compromise Bill, providing and that all laws, or parts of laws, usages, or customs pre-existing in the territories acquired by the United States from Mexico, and which in said territories restrict, abridge, or obstruct the full enjoyment of any right of person or property of a citizen of the United States, as recognized or guaranteed by the Constitution or laws of the United States, are hereby declared, and shall be held as repealed. Upon that, Mr. Clay said, Mr. President, I thought that upon this subject there had been a clear understanding in the Senate that the Senate would not decide itself upon the lex loci as it respects slavery, that the Senate would not allow the territorial legislature to pass any law, in other words, that it would leave the operation of the local law or of the Constitution of the United States upon that local law, to be decided by the proper and competent tribunal, the Supreme Court of the United States. Appendix to the Congressional Globe, 31st Congress, 1st Session, page 916. That was the position taken by Mr. Clay, the leader. A mere sentence will show with what view I regarded the dogma of non-intervention when that amendment was offered. I said, but what is non-intervention seems to vary as often as the light and shade of every fleeting cloud. It has different meanings in every state, in every county, in every town. If non-intervention means that we shall not have protection for our property and slaves, then I always was, and always shall be, opposed to it. If it means that we shall not have the protection of the law because it would favor slaveholders, that Congress shall not legislate so as to secure to us the benefits of the Constitution, then I am opposed to non-intervention and shall always be opposed to it. Appendix to the Congressional Globe, 31st Congress, 1st Session, page 919. Mr. Downs, one of the Committee of Thirteen, and an advocate of the measures, said, what I understand by non-intervention is an interposition of Congress prohibiting or establishing or interfering with slavery. Appendix to Congressional Globe, 31st Congress, 1st Session, page 99. By what species of legger domain this doctrine of non-intervention has come to be extended to a paralysis of the government on the whole subject, to exclude the Congress from any kind of legislation whatever, I am at a loss to conceive. Certain it is, it is not the theory of that period, and it was not contended for in all the controversies we had then. I had no faith in it then. I considered it to be an evasion. I held that the duty of Congress ought to be performed, that the issue was before us and ought to be met. The sooner the better. That truth would prevail if presented to the people, borne down to-day. It would rise up to-morrow, and I stood then on the same general plea which I am making now. The senator from Illinois, Mr. Douglas, and myself differed at the time, as I presume we do now. We differed radically then. He opposed every proposition which I made, voting against propositions to give power to the territorial legislature to protect slave property which should be taken there, to remove the obstructions of the Mexican laws, 
voting for a position to exclude the conclusion that slavery might be taken there, voting for the proposition expressly to prohibit its introduction, voting for the proposition to keep in force the laws of Mexico which prohibited it. Some of these votes, it is but just to him, I should say, I think he gave purpose to his instructions, but others of them, I think it is equally fair to suppose, were outside of the limits of any instructions which could have been given before the fact. In 1854, advancing in this same general line of thought, the Congress, in enacting territorial bills, left out a provision which had before been usually contained in them, requiring the legislature of the territory to submit its laws to the Congress of the United States. It has been sometimes assumed that this was the recognition of the power of the territorial legislature to exercise plenary legislation, as might that of a state. It will be remembered that, when our present form of government was instituted, there were those who believed the federal government should have the power of revision over the laws of a state. It was long and ably contended for in the convention which formed the Constitution, and one of the compromises which was made was an appellate power to lodge power in the Supreme Court to decide all questions of constitutional law. But did this omission of the obligation to send here the laws of the territories work this grant of power to the territorial legislature? Certainly not. It could not, and that it did not is evinced by the fact that at a subsequent period the organic act was revised because the legislature of the territory of kansas was offensive to the congress of the united states congress could not abdicate its authority it could not abandon its trust and when it omitted the requirement that the laws should be sent back it created a causes which required it to act without the official records being laid before it as they would have been if the obligation had existed. That was all the difference. It was not enforcing upon the agent the obligation to send the information. It left Congress, as to its power, just where it was. I find myself physically unable to go as fully into the subject as I intended, and therefore, omitting a reference to those acts, suffice it to say that here was the recognition of the obligation of Congress to interpose against a territorial legislature for the protection of personal right. That is what we ask of Congress now. I am not disposed to ask this Congress to go into speculative legislation. I am not one of those who would willingly see this Congress enact a code to be applied to all territories and for all time to come. I only ask that cases, as they arise, may be met according to the extingency. I ask that when personal and property rights of the territories are not protected, then the Congress, by existing laws and governmental machinery, shall intervene and provide such means which will secure in each case, as far as may be, an adequate remedy. I ask no slave code, nor horse code, nor machine code. I ask that the territorial legislature be made to understand beforehand that the Congress of the United States does not concede to them the power to interfere with the rights of person or property guaranteed by the Constitution, and that it will apply the remedy, if the territorial legislature should so far forget its duty, so far transcend its power, as to commit 
the violation of right. That is the announcement of the fifth resolution. These are the general views which I entertain of our right of protection and the duty of the government. They are those which are entertained by the constituency I have the honor to represent, whose delegation has recently announced those principles at Charleston. I honor them, and I approve their conduct. I think their bearing was worthy of the mother state which sent them there, and I doubt not she will receive them with joy and gratitude. They have asserted and vindicated her equality of right. By that asserted equality of right, I doubt not she will stand. For weal or for woe, for prosperity or adversity, for the preservation of the great blessings which we enjoy, or the trial of a new and separate condition, I trust Mississippi never will surrender the smallest atom of the sovereignty, independence, and equality to which she was born to avoid any danger or any sacrifice to which she may hereby be exposed. The sixth resolution of the series declares at what time a state may form a constitution and decide upon her domestic institutions. I deny this right to the territorial condition because the territory belongs in common to the states. Every citizen of the United States, as a joint owner of that territory, has a right to go into it with any property which he may possess. These territorial inhabitants require municipal law, police, and government. They should have them, but they should be restricted to their own necessities. They have no right within their municipal power to attempt to decide the rights of the people of the states. They have no right to exclude any citizen of the United States from owning and equally enjoying this common possession. It is for the purpose of preserving order and giving protection to the rights of person and property that a municipal territorial government should be instituted. The last resolution refers to a law founded on a provision of the Constitution, which contains an obligation of faith to every state of the Union, and that obligation of faith has been violated by thirteen states of the Confederacy, as many as originally fought the battles of the revolution and establish the confederation is it to be expected that a compact thus broken in part violated in its important features will be regarded as binding in all else is the free trade which the north sought in the formation of the union and for which the states generally agreed to give congress the power to regulate commerce to be trampled under foot by laws of obstruction not giving to the citizens of the South that free transit across the territory of the northern states which we might claim from any friendly state under Christendom? And is Congress to stand powerless by, on the doctrine of non-intervention? We have a right to claim abstinence from interference with our rights from any government on the earth. Shall we claim no more than that which we have constituted for our own purposes, and which we support by draining our own means for its support? We have had agitation, changing its form and gathering intensity, for the last forty years. It was first for political power, and directed against new states. Now it has assumed a social form, is all-prevailing, and has reached the point of revolution and civil war for it was only last fall that an overt act was committed by men who were sustained by arms and money raised by extensive combination among the non-slaveholding states to carry treasonable war against the state of virginia because now 
as before the revolution and ever since she held the african in bondage this is part of the history and marks the necessity of the times it warns us to stop and reflect to go back to the original standard to measure our acts by the obligation of our fathers by the pledges they made one to another to see whether we are conforming to our plighted faith and to ask seriously solemnly looking each other inquiringly in the face what we should do to save our country this agitation being at first one of sectional pride for political power has at last degenerated or grown up to as you please a trade there are men who habitually set aside a portion of money which they are annually to apply to what are called charitable purposes that is to say so far as i understand it to support some vagrant lecturer whose purpose is agitation and mischief wherever he goes this constitutes therefore a trade a class of people who are thus employed employed for mischief for incendiary purposes perhaps not always understood by those who furnish the money but such is the effect such is the result of their action and in this state of the case i call upon the senate to affirm the great principles on which our institutions rest in no spirit of crimination have i stated the reasons why i present it for these reasons i call upon them now to restrain the growth of evil passion and to bring back the public sense as far as in them lies by earnest and united effort if it may be to crown our country with peace and start it once more in its primal channel on a career of progressive prosperity and justice the majority section cannot be struggling for additional power in order to preserve their rights if any of them ever believed in what is called southern aggression they know now they have the majority in the representative districts and in the electoral college they cannot therefore fear an invasion of their rights they need no additional political power to protect them from that the argument then or the reason on which this agitation commenced has passed away and yet we are asked if a party hostile to our institutions shall gain possession of the government that we shall stand quietly by and wait for an overt act overt act is not a declaration of war an overt act what would be thought of a country that after a declaration of war while the enemy fleets are upon the sea should wait until a city has been sacked before it should say that war existed or resistance should be made the power of resistance consists in no small degree in meeting the evil at the outer gate i can speak for myself and i have no right to speak for others when i say that if i belonged to a party organized on the basis of making war on any section or interest in the united states if i know myself i would instantly quit it we have made no war against you we have asked no discrimination in our favor we claim to have but the constitution fairly and equally administered to consent to less than this would be to sink in the scale of manhood would be to make our posterity so degraded that they could curse this generation for robbing them of the rights their revolutionary fathers bequeathed them among the great purposes declared in the preamble of the constitution is one to provide for the general welfare provision for the general welfare implies general fraternity 
this union was not expected to be held together by coercion the power of force as a means was denied they sought however to bind it perpetually together with that which was stronger than triple bars of brass and steel the ceaseless current of kind offices renewing and renewed in an eternal flow and gathering volume and velocity as it rolled it was a function intended not for the injury of any it declared its purpose to be the benefit of all concessions which were made between the different states in the convention proved the motive each gave to the other that which was necessary to it what each could afford to spare young as a nation our triumphs under this system have had no parallel in human history we have tamed a wilderness we have spanned a continent we have built up a granary that secures the commercial world against the fear of famine higher than all this we have achieved a moral triumph we have received by hundreds of thousands a constant tide of immigrants energetic if not well educated fleeing some from want some from oppression some from the penalties of violated law receive them into our society and by the gentle suasion of a government which exhibits no force by removing want and giving employment they have subsided into peaceful citizens and have increased the wealth and power of our country if then this temple so blessed and to the roof of all which we were about to look to see it extended over the continent giving a protecting arm to infant republics that need it if this temple is tottering on its pillars what i ask can be a higher or nobler duty for the senate to perform than to rush to its pillars and uphold them or to be crushed in the attempt we have tampered with a question which has grown in magnitude by each year's delay it requires to be plainly met the truth is to be told the patriotism and the sound sense of the people whenever the federal government from its high places of authority shall proclaim the truth in unequivocal language will in my firm belief receive and approve it but so long as we deal like the delphic oracle in words of double meaning so long as we attempt to escape from responsibility and exhibit our fear to declare the truth by the fact that we do not act upon it we must expect speculative theory to occupy the mind of the public and err to increase as time rolls on but if the sad fate should be ours for this minute cause to destroy our government the historian who shall attempt philosophically to examine the question will after he has put on his microscopic glasses and discovered it be compelled to cry out veritably so the unseen insect in the course of time destroys the mighty oak now i believe may i not say i believe if not then i hope there is yet time by the full explicit declaration of the truth to disabuse the popular mind to arouse the popular heart to expose the danger from lurking treason and ill-concealed hostility to rally a virtuous people to their country's rescue who circling closer and deeper as the storm gathers fury around the ark of their father's covenant will place it in security there happily to remain a sign of fraternity justice and equality to our remotest posterity End of Appendix F 
End of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume A, by Jefferson Davis.